thing to introduce to you Larry Smithwick, Pastor Larry Smithwick, and his lovely wife are here this morning. Um, they are now um, sort of renewed neighbors to us here in Anchorage because they have moved most recently to Soldatna off of Kalifonsky. I don't know if that's too much information for me to share that, but anyway, just uh, down there. I say that road because I've been there and uh, I like that area a lot. Uh, very beautiful piece of Alaska and uh, it's great to have them so close by. Larry uh, Smithwick and Sherry came here in 1977 uh, to plant a church just down the road in an elementary school and then that church grew and blossomed over the next uh, 14, 15 years of their ministry here and it um, expanded into community groups and into a facility here um, that we are enjoying today and we're continuing to renew and, and see the Lord's blessing in. Also, Grace Christian School was founded in 1981 and it uh, launched from the ministry of Anchorage Grace Church and um, both ministries, both, both uh, gospel-centered, gospel-giving ministries are going strong today and that's such a, a beautiful expression and legacy of the Smithwick's uh, investment here. I uh, was just privileged to actually have a, a same uh, mentor and professor from Grace Theological Seminary. Uh, Larry, I should clarify, went to Grace Theological Seminary. Um, he was there 1971 and finished his MDiv under a professor. And that professor, um, I met him over at Liberty University a few years later when I was beginning to study the Bible for ministry. And uh, because we have that relationship in common, I was able to ask that professor, do you remember Larry? And when he went up to uh, Alaska and he remembered, and he remembered him and, and was excited to hear about the ministry of Anchorage Grace Church and just the seed that was sown in the 70s and how it's continuing to flourish and develop here is, uh, is a testimony of God's grace and a testimony of how God uses people who will sacrificially go. It's almost like back then it was like going on the mission field to come here and to plant local church life and gospel word-centered ministry. And um, for 35 years, expository preaching from the word of God has happened here. And it's, um, it's not by accident. It's not by mistake. The Lord wants his word spoken. Amen. And so we're part of that, that process and part of that, that history together. Um, Larry and Sherry have um, been part of a few other churches, one um, ministry in California, in Ripon, California. Before they came here, they were there. And then also uh, up in Oregon, Newburgh, Oregon, for a few years. And then most recently in Sugar Creek, Ohio, ministering the Word of God. So Larry and Sherry have been in full-time ministry all of those years. They have two sons. Rob most recently went to be with the Lord, as many of you know. And then Eric is still here. And then they have 11 grandchildren Larry, come on up and minister the word of God to us this morning. Being back after 21 years, I've seen a lot of change. There's a few things that seem never to change. Cal Dunham is still here at Anchorage Grace. <laughs> Cal Worthington is still selling Fords. He's got to be 112 by now. He was old in 1977. I saw some familiar faces, all seemingly from the same generation up there, blowing their own horns. Some things never change. And then I saw Mike Taylor. Mike was on the elder board uh, back when we left. And we prayed fervently that he might be able to sweet talk someone into marrying him. He, he, he was the only single person on the elder board. Just before I left, he married Stephanie. And Stephanie, I, I apologize to you that I never did express my condolences to you. <laughs> I, I appreciate your uh, occasional Christmas letter. And I hope before the day's over, I get to meet all of your children. As Pastor Jeff said, we've uh, been around, uh, spent 10 years at First Conservative Baptist Church in Newburgh, Oregon, and the last six years, 
We've been in Sugar Creek, Ohio, ministering in a community Bible church in the middle of a cornfield surrounded by Amish farmers. We had 40 or 50 buggies go by our house every day. An Amish lady, single Amish lady, bought our house when we left. First thing we did when we got there is uh, went down to the local buggy shop and shopped around. We got this sporty model that got 40 miles to the bale. We never, we never were able to resolve our emission issues. <laughs> and if you don't think that's a problem, move back there. <laughs> On days when it rains, the emissions turn to soup. And they get in your window or your t t wheel wells and then drip in your garage. And uh, the odor is interesting. <clears throat> It is hard to express the joy that we experience coming and seeing evidences of God's sustaining grace to the people in this church assembly. 35 years is a long time, and uh, many in this church have been so faithful as stewards of the gifts that God has given you. And God's faithfulness through you is evident in the ongoing uh, evidence of his prospering of the ministry of uh, Grace Church and its ministry to the, of the Grace Christian School. Uh, I just marvel at the faithfulness of God. I, th I thank you that you sang that song this morning. Every other year, my mother's family gathers for a reunion, family reunion, and that's one of the first songs we sing is, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Led by the patriarch of our clan, my uncle, 96-year-old Dr. Robert D. Culver, who when he was 90 published a 1,300-page systematic theology. It's great reading. It'll put you to sleep. It, it just, it's so heavy, it'll, and you're out. It's a terrific book an expression of God's incredible faithfulness to us. I want to thank you, elders, Pastor Jeff, Pastor Steve, congregation, uh, for the gracious invitation to share in this time together today. Let's pray. Father, I just uh, thank you for your incredible grace, the expressions of your faithfulness to your people. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that so many in this congregation of believers have been passionate stewards of the gifts that you have given to them, building upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, as we heard today, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone and Lord of the church. I thank you, Heavenly Father, as we see the geopolitical situation of the world today seemingly coming together to form that pattern that will be here when Jesus comes. We believe that the return of the Lord Jesus is imminent. We thank you for the privilege of being alive at this time period. I thank you, Father, that you are Lord of the church, you are sovereign, and in your providence, you are leading world history to a pre-designed end which culminates in the day of the Lord, the glorious day of the Lord when he comes to establish his kingdom on earth. The inaugural phase of that kingdom for a thousand years and then forever and ever and ever. Father, in your unfathomable election and calling, you chose us. Out of all of the millions that could have been, you chose us. And we are humbled and we are eternally grateful for our eternal salvation in Christ Jesus, in whose name I pray, amen. 
I often ask young people, especially, is there anything in your life that you are passionate about? And then I follow up that question, is there anything in your life that you would be willing to die for? And uh, I find that people have never thought about that for the most part, and they come up kind of empty. But as a believer, we have passion to burn. I'm talking about believers who are not all caught up in the world, but as Paul said in Colossians, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Abiding in Christ, and you're passionate about many things, but especially about Jesus. I am passionate about Jesus. And second only to that passion is my passion for the Word of God. I so appreciated what I heard Pastor Jeff share as the values that are maintained by this church uh, Friday night. One of them being an expository approach to the teaching of God's Word, where it's not the preacher that's speaking, but it's opening up the Word of God that the Holy Spirit might speak through the Word of God to our hearts. That's expository preaching. And that is exactly what I'm not going to do this morning. You've, those of you that have heard me preach know that's what I regularly do. Expository preaching is not preaching to the Bible, it's preaching from the Bible. This morning, I'm going to preach about the Bible because it is my life. It is my passion. I would like to have the projector turned on if I could. This time it is on. Thank you. I want to say that the uh, PowerPoint presentation this morning, along with what I'm saying, I prepared six or eight months ago to speak to a group of about 40 or 50 people. I put it together in about a half hour as I sat and thought what the Word of God means to me. Word of God is what has made it possible for me to endure through the years, over 40 years, as a pastor. I want to tell you, not blowing my horn, but I want to tell you that the pastors in this church have a difficult job. It ain't easy. What they do takes an incredible amount of sacrifice. Lift them up in prayer. Encourage them. Support them. And if you want to criticize them, do it to their face. It'll do some good. Much of what I'm going to share this morning is a personal testimony. The Bible is the most significant, controversial, and enduring book ever written. It is the most published and translated book ever written. It has been translated into over 2,500 languages, next uh, six trillion publications of it. Second are the sayings of Mao Zedong. Then the Quran, or the Quran, comes in at 800 million. And we must not forget the mark of Zorro. About a year ago, four of my teenage grandchildren, their mother, and my wife and I were discussing what movie we should watch that evening. And it was decided that maybe we should watch The Mark of Zorro. And I said, oh, good. Catherine Zeta-Jones stars in that, and she's hot. And I, I expected what I got in unison. Four voices said, Grandpa, The Mark of Zorro. Right up there, uh, not too far behind the Koran. This book self-proclaims to be the special revelation, the self-revelation of God by God. And that brings up the question, is the Bible inspired? I'm going to call three witnesses. 
The first being the Bible itself, which says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all graphe, not just concepts, words, ideas, thoughts, the actual words maintained, preserved in the original manuscripts of Scripture are what are inspired. God breathed, theonumatos. Guaranteed accurate. Now, how in the world can that be possible when you see the personality of Paul in the Pauline epistles and you see the personality of Peter in the Petrine epistles? You see the difference of personality between Jeremiah and Ezekiel and, and so on and on. Peter explains for us when he says that no prophecy of Scripture came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were born along. The resulting words that were used were managed, superintended, guarded, protected by the Holy Spirit as he directed the authors of Scripture. So that what we have is what God intended using the personalities, the final pro product, however, being what God intended to be said. The Bible itself declares that it is that its origin is from God and is guaranteed accurate what God intended to say. The second witness I bring to the witness stand is the science of mathematical probability. The Bible is not one, but 66 books. Actually, the Bible is a collection of 70 books. Five books of Psalms were put together into what we call the Book of Psalms plus 65 other books are the, the, what the Bible contains. Written by 40 different authors, most of whom were not contemporaries, most of whom did not know each other. It was written over a 1,600-year period, beginning with Job and ending with the Apostle John. It was written in three different languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, it was written on three continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe, and there are no historical errors or contradictions. Another said, thinking about these realities, 66 books written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years in three different languages on three different continents, what's more? This collection of books shares a common storyline, a common theme, and a common message. In addition to sharing these commonalities, these 66 books contain no historical errors or contradictions. Conclusion, the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation bears the mark of divine inspiration. And the laws of mathematical probability are one to one with a whole truckload of zeros behind it. In other words, it's impossible for a book like this to exist without having had a common author. And that author was the Holy Spirit. The third Witness I bring is the internal marks of inspiration in the Word of God itself. This is familiar territory to most of you. Over 300 prophecies fulfilled at the first coming of Christ. The location of his nativity in Micah chapter 5 verse 2 tells us that it would be in Bethlehem. The marks of his identity, the description of his person, many of them found in the, by the prophet Isaiah when the the disciples of John the Baptist came, came to Jesus and said, Are you the promised one who is to come? And he says, Go back and tell John the Baptist that the blind are made to see, the deaf are made to hear, the dead are raised, and so on. He even walked on water. I haven't seen a faith healer doing that lately, except up here in Alaska in the wintertime. It's the only time I've ever walked on water. And, and so on. And then the, the details of his death. I love it in, in Psalm 22. You're just reading along as David is lamenting, and then the voice of Jesus comes in, in the present tense. 
They pierced, my, they pierced my hands and my feet. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Written a thousand years before the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus said, search the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament, for in them, for they, for they speak of me. And oh, do they. More about that in a minute. The divine cr credentials of the authors. You're familiar with these passages, I'm sure. Jesus began to speak. His word were verified by the miracles that he did. And then those who heard him, who were witnesses, they bore witness. The apostles of the New Testament. And God confirmed them with signs and wonders and mighty deeds. He was confirming the word of God given through them. And then at the end of the Bible, the divine closure of his revelation to man in the last chapter of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, God says, The faith, once and for all, delivered unto the saints. Anyone adds to the words of these books or anyone takes away from the words of these books, the revelation was closed, it was sealed, and it's contained here in God's gift to us, his self-revelation and the story of redemption on our behalf that Jesus came to provide. Now, that's just a little uh, background. Why am I passionate about God's word? This is my testimony. As I thought about it, I came up with six, six things. First of all, the most obvious, through it, God saved me. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And Peter put it this way, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. From a spiritual sense, what happens when one's faith is placed in Christ, revealed to us through the word of God, faith united with the truth of God's word, joined together by the Holy Spirit, a transformation takes place. A person is born again. He is born spiritually. He becomes a new creature in Christ Jesus. C.S. Lewis put it, he takes on a new spiritual DNA. If you're truly born again, you're weird compared to the rest of the world. You're very different. You're alive. You have purpose you have passion, you have meaning, you have a destiny that you look toward. You are no longer just a citizen on earth. You are a citizen of heaven. Through God, through the word of God, God saved me. And I am so grateful that he did so when I was a child, six, seven years old. Through it, God revolutionized my life, first by redirecting my focus. Philippians 3.10 says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. I have learned at my age that suffering is an essential, absolute essential gift of God's grace to conform us to his image. Without it, we'd never cut it. We'd never amount to much. We need suffering. God, in his mercy and grace, as the great physician, knows how it is to be dispensed. And I'm grateful for that as well. But it says here that I may know him. Not just about him, but that I may know him. The word of God is essential to knowing him. God has redirected my focus largely through the word of God. And through the word of God, he restores my life or sustains my life along the way. Uh, I absent myself from the word of God for a brief time, and I don't do too well. The word of God to me is life 
itself. I was talking with somebody recently. The average churchgoer, I'm going to say the average born-again, true, true Christian churchgoer, which represents about 5 to 6% of the population of the United States. Even among them, their spiritual intake consists of going to church probably twice a month. That's 26 half-hour sessions with the Word of God, 13 hours of biblical instruction, and for most Christians in our hedonistic belief in the gospel of what's in it for me, that's it, because most Christians do not pick up their Bible 365 days out of the year, except to take it to church, maybe. And we wonder why there is so much dysfunction, so much problem, so much junk in the, in the lives of Christians today. First of all, they are biblically illiterate, and they are undernourished and sickly. The Word of God, as I said, is life to me. It keeps me on course, and when I get off course, it brings me back on course. A professor of mine, and you old-timers around here have heard me say this before, but boy, did it stick. This professor said, I have a hard time memorizing Scripture. I just, I just can't do it. Well, I, boy, I related to him. I can't either. Do you know what he said? By continually, regularly reading the Word of God, he said, my mind is like a sieve. But by continually reading the Word of God, it keeps the sieve clean. Oh, that's good. By the renewing of your mind, it says, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Through it, God guides me. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his path or his steps. Boy, have I found that to be true. We plan. God laughs. We plan, but God directs our steps. And he does that for me, largely through the word of God. The guiding principles of my life, our lives, are found through the word of God. Fourth, through it, God protects me. Now, I'm not talking about saying a prayer, Lord, we're going to fly to Seattle. Lord, I want you to keep this airplane in the sky. Nonsense. When I get on the airplane, I just say, thank you, Lord that my life is in Christ. You promised to never leave me nor forsake me. And as a pastor by the name of Dwight Cover from this pulpit once said, my life is immortal until God's purposes for me on this earth are done. Amen. You believe that? Yeah. Okay, that's not the kind of protection I'm talking about. You got that covered. I mean, God's got that covered. I'm talking about spiritual protection. If you would, turn to, turn to Ephesians 6. Those of you that grew up in Sunday school had teachers that just loved to tell you about the armor of God. <clears throat> Philippians 6, beginning at verse 10. Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Here's why we put on the armor of God, that we might stand against the wiles of the devil. Why? Because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against demonic powers. How many of you believe in demons? How many of you believe that they are active in the life of a Christian? Oh, good. You're right. Very active. We're wrestling against demonic powers. Therefore, verse 13 Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Having done all to stand, stand therefore having girded your waist with truth. Here it is. Gird your waist with this. And then it goes on to say, Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And then it says, verse 16, Above all, most importantly, 
taking the shield of faith that you may quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Just to make sure, it had been a while since I preached through this passage, I went back and checked in my Greek Testament, and it says, putting on the shield, or take up the shield of the faith. There's a definite article there. It's not talking about try to screw up a lot of faith when the devil comes. It says, take the shield of faith, and it will quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. What did Jesus do when he was tempted by the devil? Did he try to screw on a lot of faith? No. He said it is written when confronted by the enemy. What do we do when we're confronted by the enemy? The Bible tells us to take up the shield of faith. Now, my wife and I are, are weird. We both believe, we've learned experientially, I'll talk about me. Growing up, I was preconditioned to respond to most situations in fear. Enemy, knowing that, would pile on, and I would get very fearful to the point of depression. My wife pointed out to me one day that you're reacting up here to a situation that's down here. Somebody was messing with my mind. She recognized it first. And I learned, largely through my wife, to confront fear with the shield of faith. I'm standing here today because the shield of faith, faith was applied to my life at a very desperate time in my life, shortly after leaving here. God gave me three wonderful years out of the ministry. Every night, late at night, all by myself, stealing cars as a repo man. It was just me and God. Never once in three years turned on the radio. Except for the time that Mickey Sleeper went out with me. We ripped off three cars that night, and she still talks about it. She thought that was really cool. It was fun. We had a good time. But during those three years, that's one of the things I learned. And sure enough, sometimes, if we're in a public place, uh, we'll slip off where nobody can hear. I believe in verbally speaking truth. I don't address Satan. But when, the, when I'm under attack, I'm being harassed by the enemy. I verbalize the statements of God's word in defense. If I have to get off in a private place where nobody can hear me, it's what I do. It affirms my faith, if nothing else, but I speak it out loud. I don't know if the devil can hear it or not, but I can. And I stand behind the shield of faith. This has been a great, one of the most significant things that God has taught me in the last 30 years. <clears throat> Fifth, through it, God gives me peace. In it, I find that in Christ, I am accepted in the beloved. Ephesians 1. Boy, I love that word, accepted. I didn't feel very accepted when I was a kid. It's just so good to know that I'm accepted. I've been born as a child, adopted as a son, a legal heir, joint heir with Christ, redeemed from the slave market of sin, forgiven, Justified, declared righteous, and called a saint. One set apart unto the glory of God. Not only am I accepted, but I am secure, forever free of condemnation. Sealed by the Holy Spirit. A citizen of heaven now, safe from all of Satan's accusations. And that nothing or no one can ever separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And thirdly, I am significant. Salt and light. A personal ambassador of Jesus Christ. I'm God's temple. I'm God's co-worker. I'm God's workmanship. A verb, poema, in the present tense, which means that God is actively involved in my life, making me a poetic expression of his grace and glory. That's what the word means. I'm his, his workmanship, and it's an ongoing project. I'm glad for that. There's still hope. 
for me. And this all leads to peace, peace with God, first of all, the peace of God. And I, I want to go, those three words, accepted, secure, and significant, those address three of the core heart hungers of mankind, maybe the three primary heart hungers of mankind. And mankind looks to everything and everyone and everything but Jesus. But in him, I find the answer, the fulfilling of the heart hungers of man. And you know, maybe most of you, like myself, as a guy, as a Mike, he found his Stephanie. Sherry found her Larry. And we thought, man, that's going to take care of it. All of my emotional needs are going to be met. Oh, this is wonderful. We're going to have a house with the white picket fence, and everything is going to be hunky-dory from here on out. About three months into marriage, reality hits you like a sledgehammer. And you know what? That knight in shining armor, the armor kind of been tarnished a little bit by then, and you, you came to realize that no human being can meet the deepest heart hungers of your life. There is only one who can. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul said that I may know him. Not just about him, but I may know him. And that comes through knowing, communing with the word of God. God speaks to me. I hear his voice. No, I don't. As I spend time in the Word of God on a very regular basis, quietly, opening myself up, not emptying myself, as the New Agers would say, and hear these voices, and that's when they hear demons, but opening myself up to God, the Holy Spirit, immersed in the truth of His Word, communing with God. He speaks through His Word to me. Largely, it's words of Conviction. James says it's a mirror. It shows you if you got jam on your nose. You know, it, it corrects, it convicts. That's a, a major part. It's an important part. But it's through the Word of God that, that God speaks to us. I don't hear voices, but God speaks to me nonetheless. Finally, Finally, at this point, i still got more to say. Through it, I was told that I could speak till noon. I lie a lot. <laughs> Through it, God gives me a sure hope for the future. As it says in Colossians 1.27, Christ in me, the hope of glory. Looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I have never, never lived a day where I felt alone. I know what loneliness is. Any of you out there that are in a, that live in a glass house, you've been called to give leadership, you know what loneliness is. I've experienced loneliness, but I've never felt alone. Not since I was six years old. I've always known that I, he would never leave me nor forsake me. And for reasons that only God knows, I was permitted to internalize that truth from here down to here. When I was a little boy, I gave my heart to Jesus, and I knew that he was with me. And I've always known that. I've never felt alone. And I've also known, I've never lived a day without knowing that death will be the doorway to real life. I'll give you this P.S. here. <clears throat> the word of God is eternal. Forever, O Lord, your words are settled in heaven. It is unchanging. Till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will pass away from the words of this book. And it is final. Some of it was even written 
in stone by the finger of God. It is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And by it, man will be judged at the end of time. And I want to just point out something here. I, I don't know about the theology of this. I think I got it right. A verse that is very familiar to you. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the to dividing in the, of the soul and spirit and of the joint and marrow. And the word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight. Capital H. Right in the middle of that verse, we're talking about the word of God, and then all of a sudden, it's Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among men. Jesus is the living Word. He is the one that's going to be seated at the white throne, the judgment seat of Christ, and the great white throne. It is Jesus who will be the ultimate final judge before whom we will all stand. And everything will be exposed and open. There will be nothing hidden. And that judgment will be based upon the Word of God. And Jesus is the Word of God. The express image, the declaration and description of the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. Jesus was the exegeter of the Father. The Word of God and Jesus are inseparable. Well, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. As Solomon said, When God judges a nation which knew him but forsook him, he removes his word. That's what God, that's what Jesus said through Amos regarding the children of Israel. I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread or a thirst of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. That is also true, not just on a national level, but on an individual level. In Proverbs 29, 18, it says, where there is no ro'eh, the word for special revelation, divine revelation, the word of God, people perish. <clears throat> is that happening in America today? How many churches in America today faithfully proclaim the truth of God's word? Pretty low percentage. What about the public workplace? Has the Ten Commandments been taken out of the schools? Etc., etc. God brings a famine of the word of God and the rest will be history. I don't believe our, our time is very long. As Americans, I think we're going to experience incredible change even in this decade. And as I look at the geopolitical situation around the world, in the Western world, which has had the truth of the Word of God, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the European formed nations in South America, America, all of Europe, all have turned their back as a cultures on the truth of the Word of God. Abortion, no big deal, that's in. Homosexual marriage? You gotta be kidding me. Two guys get married, which one of them's gonna have the baby? You know, even natural law, apart from what God has said, says it's ridiculous. But the acceptance of homosexuality is the final nail in the coffin, in my opinion. Because it is an attack against the very image of God. We will do our own thing. And the rush to a one world government, all it is is the Tower of Babel again. Man doing his own thing apart from God. We will be God. That is a universal geopolitical situation that's accelerating to its climax ultimately in the coming of the Antichrist and the glorious return of the Lord. 
I think that's where we're headed. I may be wrong. I'm not preaching Bible here. I'm giving you an opinion. I'm going to put that footnote in there. But that's where, where, what I see. God withholds his word when he brings judgment to a nation. My journey with this book began in junior high when my Sunday school teacher, Neil Payton, said, Boys, I want you to tell me how many chapters did you read this week? And he would write them down and he'd add them up. He'd say, great job. No. Put that in his Bible and he'd do it again next week. No, no, no bubble gum, no, no prizes, nothing, just peer pressure. <laughs> but you know what? That got me into the book. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> I didn't put it down until about three years later I'd read the whole thing. And I turned around and read it again. And I've done that for six, uh, 50 years. Just keep reading through the Bible, back and forth, back and forth. Communing with the Lord, as I did. But it all began in junior high Sunday school. The number one reason I have endured as a pastor is this book. It changed my life, and I've been privileged to see hundreds of people's lives changed by the simple teaching of the Word of God. The Bible, I do want to declare to you, is a dangerous book. If you are one of those I described as getting 13 hours of biblical instruction every year, if you do not want God messing with your life, don't you dare pick up the Bible. It'll mess with your life. Guaranteed. So stay away from it. If you like living selfishly, self-absorbed, self-centered, living for yourself, and uh, having no peace, purpose, meaning to your life much, don't mess with the Bible. It'll mess up your mind. Become passionate about it. About it. It'll lead you to a, a knowledge of and a love for its author. I probably should be quitting, right? Could I have five more minutes? All right, all right, five more. <clears throat> In the Old Testament, you see L-O-R-D, all caps. That's a reference to Jehovah or Yahweh. It's also, over 90% of the time, Jesus. About 300 times it's referring to the Father and maybe a time or two the Holy Spirit. But essentially, when you read the Old Testament and you're seeing the interaction between Jesus and the Israelites, it's the story of Jesus and his compassion and love and, and arguing with the Israelites to try to get them to where they are, should be. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, Paul said that spiritual rock that followed Israel through the wilderness was the rock Christ Jesus. Jehovah in the Old Testament is essentially, most times, referring to Jesus. Search the scriptures, for they speak of me, and oh, how they do. It just brings the, the Old Testament alive when you understand that. Something that was pointed out to me just in the last year, I don't know why I missed this, but I did. In the Hebrew text of the Old Testament, there are references to Jesus that are untranslated. Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, who is and who was and shall ever be. I may have mistranslated that part. The Almighty. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the Almighty. Got it? Jesus says, I'm God. I'm the one. Can't compare myself to anybody else at the burning bush. I am that was Jesus. I am Alpha and Omega. Okay, in the Old Testament, you all know this verse, Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word for God is Elohim. But between Elohim and the next word, scholars call it an untranslatable tag. Guess what that tag is? It's Aleph and Tav. Alpha and Omega, Aleph and Tav, the first and last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. 
They just leave it untranslated. I believe what it would look like in English, if it were translated, would be in the beginning, God created, parenthesis, Jesus, end parenthesis. In the beginning, God, Jesus, the person of the Trinity, or the Godhead, who, who did the creating. And John chapter 1 tells us all things were created through or by Jesus. Okay, there's another passage. It's in Zechariah chapter 11. Turn to Matthew and then backwards a few pages and you'll come to Zechariah chapter 11. I lied, chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 9. Now this is a, a millennial passage talking about the, the millennium that's coming. And, and as it comes, before, right at the beginning, when, when Jesus comes in his glory, and the brightness of his coming, he destroys the Antichrist, the armies that are, are, are coming against Jerusalem at that time, at the end of Armageddon, it says, it shall come in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they shall look on me whom they pierced. When Jesus comes with the king of kings and lord of lords emblazoned on his side, the whole world sees, they see, and they, they believe. They mourn, it says, all Israel, which will only be a remnant at that time, a third who are remaining. But they will all come to salvation in Christ in a moment as they see him whom they pierced. All right, in the text, I will pour on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, and they shall look upon me, parenthesis, Aleph Tav. Jesus. What could be more clear? Thank you, Lord Jesus. Old Testament and New Testament. Immutable, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Eternal God, before whom we will fall on our face, but be lifted up in fellowship and communion with you forever. I thank you, Father, that all of life and all of history begins and ends with Jesus. And we look forward, Father, to that day when we set aside this earthly tabernacle and are forever in your presence. Until then, Father, we may, may we, as the Apostle John, love one another and that by this all men will know that we are your disciples. This I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.